1990, Caravaggio's last masterpiece, The Taking of Christ, was discovered in Dublin in the residence of the Jesuit order. Well, as you've been hearing, the National Gallery of Ireland has confirmed today that it's uncovered a lost masterpiece by the 16th century Italian master Caravaggio. The painting, entitled The Taking of Christ... Finding this lost painting by Caravaggio, the 16th century Baroque artist, whose works are now considered priceless, made waves all over the world. It's undergone extensive investigation and according to the gallery's assistant director, Dr Brian Kennedy... In 1930, my own great-grandfather made the headlines in County Galway in connection with a Caravaggio. In three local papers, the headlines read as follows. A fortunate purchase, profit on picture and Caravaggio in tune. Caravaggio in tune. At the auction of the furniture and personal property of the late Mr. Henry Concannon, solicitor, Grove House, Tume, two oil paintings were purchased by Mr. Thomas McHugh, Central Hotel, Tume. One painting, an original by Caravaggio, the Italian artist who died in 1609, was bought by Mr. McHugh for £4, 7 shillings and 6 pence. He has since sold it at Christie's, London, for £136, 10 shillings. My name is Nora Nicanolti. I was born and raised in Dublin, but my dad's family originally came from Tume, County Galway. I had heard snippets of the story of Caravaggio whilst growing up, but I had largely forgotten about it until last January when I visited the National Gallery of Ireland and saw the taking of Christ. It made me wonder, could it possibly be true? Could our family once have been the proud owners of one of his priceless works of art? And if so, what was it? And where is it now? Hello, Ruth. It was the start of the summer when I began my search. How are you keeping? My cousin Ruth McHugh, originally from Galway but now living in Dublin, had researched this story as part of a college project. Looking forward to doing this, to beginning the adventure. Yeah, yeah. But as an artist herself, it also held a huge personal interest for her. She had contacted Christie's to confirm the sale. So this is the email that was the big shock from Linda McLeod. Dear Ruth McHugh, I have found the reference to your grandfather's property being brought into Christie's, King Street, on May 10th, 1930, Thomas McHugh, Central Hotel, Tune Company. The consignment consisted of two pieces of silver and one picture. The painting went into an old picture sale held on the 16th of June, 1930, and was catalogued as Various Properties, Lot 135, Caravaggio. And there it was. Confirmation from Christie's that the painting was sold as a Caravaggio. Maybe, just maybe, we could hold out hope. Could this be one of the mere 64 known works attributed to him? Or a lost masterpiece? A girl in blue dress with embroidered cloak, unframed. It was 32 inches by 28 and a half inches. And the hammer price was £136 and 10 shillings, 130 guineas, to A. Martin. The lot is not illustrated in the catalogue. 
I hope this information helps you with your research. Yours sincerely. Although not an exact science, buying a painting for £4 might equate to €200 in today's money and selling it for €136 to €6,000. According to family lore, this money was enough to buy Tom one of Tum's first cars, a baby Ford sedan. Catalogues in those days did not contain images of the paintings for sale, so we could only imagine what the painting looked like. In any case, Christie's had given us our first lead, the buyer, an A. Martin. But first I wanted to find out more about Tom McHugh, my great-grandfather, the man who bought the painting. My dad has memories of his grandfather. Born in 1877, Tom came from humble beginnings. He was born in the townland of Belmont, which is about eight miles northwest of the town of Tuam. And uh, my understanding is that the family were evicted twice from their holding of about 18 acres in that location. And um, some of his family, many of his siblings, emigrated to the United States and made their life there. But uh, Tom stayed at home and uh, he was a a stonemason, a monumental sculptor and a building contractor. Geraldine O'Flaherty, Tom's granddaughter, had heard stories of him from her mother Una and had memories of her own. In his earlier years, 1893 to 1900 bracket, he was in London. And while he was in London, he joined Conrana Gaelga. And uh, one of the stories was that he taught Sinead de Valera her Irish. Don't know how, how, how likely that was. But that also whilst he was there, he attended the Slade uh, School of Art. When he came home, Tom set up a stone-cutting business in Athenry and came into the possession of a hotel in quite a remarkable way, or so the story goes. He was married in Athenry and he uh, had a hotel in Athenry which he may have won in a raffle. We don't have the details of that. If that's true, that probably set him on his way. He, he married Mary uh, Fallon from Turlockmore and, of course, she may have contributed a dowry to the pot as well. And uh, from Athenry then they moved on to Tume and opened the central hotel there. We didn't see much of my grandfather after my grandmother died and she died when I was about six. But prior to that, I used to go down to the hotel with my mother. And I remember him being a very gentle, white-haired, with a moustache man and you would go for a walk with him and he would always have uh, sweets in his pocket for you. Um, Bullseyes were a favourite and usually you didn't want to eat them because they were kind of covered in fur. (laughs) But it was very nice to get them. And he would tell you stories and he used to tell us stories about the children of Lure. He was very involved in Irish and Irish culture and he liked to tell us stories with an Irish slant. Tom had a deep connection with Irish culture and the Irish language, but he also developed a passion and an eye for European art. His daughter Una, Geraldine's mum, liked to reminisce about this. She seemed to think that my grandfather had a very good eye for paintings and she was very proud of the fact that he could do that. Una accompanied Tom on one of his trips to Christie's. She had once travelled with my grandfather to London and she remembered that he liked a painting called The Idle Servant by Nicholas Mays. 
and also a painting about of Saint Sebastian. But she went on to say that he had a, a nude, a wonderful painting, and it was stretched out at the bottom of the stairs, and the, some of the visitors would come in and give out about it, the indecent thing, but the men liked it. And she thought that one of the most valuable paintings that he had had was the marriage of Saint Cecilia, and that what he did was buy them at auction and put them up in the house and then bring them to Christie's. In 1930, the culture of the big house in Ireland was vanishing. But in the 18th and 19th centuries, the most prestigious of the big houses were in their prime and had amassed vast collections of European art, Italian in particular. Much of this art was purchased on what was called the Grand Tour, with old masters such as Titian, Raphael and Rubens being in particular demand. With the decline of the big house, accelerated by the troubles of the 1920s, the auction houses on the quays of Dublin were spilling over with old master paintings from the departing Anglo-Irish. It was clear that in this climate, great art was changing hands. Now I prepared some notes for you. And did you get the, the, the photocopy of the McHugh's? The shop front, yeah. Having found out more about my great-grandfather, I was more curious than ever to know the fate of this painting, a girl in blue dress with embroidered cloak. I went to Tume to meet Dr Tony Claffey and Maris Lahine, local historians and members of the old Tume Society, who had some pictures and articles for me. It's the workshop, it's McHugh's workshop. Uh, that's, and the, the stone yard was just at the back of that or beside that. And how had the painting made its way to Tume in the first place? Tom bought it from the recently deceased Henry Concannon, an established lawyer from a well-to-do landed family. So he was one end Concannon. The Protestant branch spelled the name as one end Concannon. Catholics had two ends. And that goes back to, um, I think, the 1700s. So these Protestants for quite a while. I suppose because he was a landed man, he, in order to hold on to his land, he became Protestant. That was a, a regular trend in the 18th century. He was a distinguished solicitor in the Tume area, and um, he owned the Grove House. He bought the Grove House, which was later a hospital, uh, around the 1890s, and he lived there until... He died in 1930 in February, and his wife died the following month, and it must be just after that that uh, the paintings that he owned were, were auctioned, uh, among which would have been the Caravaggio. Henry's father had moved to Tume to work as a solicitor for the Protestant Archbishop. Could this be how the painting made its way into the family? Or perhaps it's more likely that a well-connected countess of Prussian descent brought it into the family when she married into the Concanons in 1853. But when all is said and done, we may never know. Hi, how are you? Would you mind if I asked you a question? I'm making a documentary about my great-grandfather, local man. I'm just wondering where the Bon Secours Hospital used to be. Is that it? We're standing across the road from it. Brilliant. We visited the site of what was once Grove House, where the painting was originally bought. I had imagined this kind of landed 
I had imagined Grove House being in the country, but yeah. it's right in the middle of Toome Town, not a hundred metres from the square. Ruth found the notice for the Grove House auction in the Toome Herald. It ran the length of the newspaper page and listed almost every stick of furniture that was to be sold. I have been instructed by the executors of the late Mrs Henry Concannon to sell by public auction at the Grove Tomb on Wednesday, April 30th and Thursday, 1st of May, 1930, the entire collection of modern and antique furniture with other effects comprising. There's a list of rooms now in the house, so we start with a hall, carved, lacquered hall seat, table and two chairs to match. Three carved oak flower pots, flower stands, brass bound flower top. And then into the dining room, mahogany sideboard with beveled mirror, large turkey carpet, three pair of plush curtains and poles, several oil paintings, including a Michelangelo, wall plaques, copper spirit kettle, and the Michelangelo is just by the by in the middle of that list. Michelangelo may well have referred to Caravaggio. Michelangelo was Caravaggio's first name, and he was often known as such. And the fact that the reference was tucked away may well, of course, have been because Caravaggio was not valued then, as he is now. The first time I read this, I passed it by. I jumped to the drawing room, thinking that maybe if there was a painting, it would be in the drawing room. And there are, there's description of some paintings in the drawing room, but it was actually in the dining room that these paintings were. So I presume conversation pieces as people at dinner, visitors who came to dinner, and obviously they had big dinners, they had 12 dining room chairs. So obviously when they had guests to dinner, they would know this painting. So here, this is, this is so this is. I never uh, thought about was that his workshop is in such proximity to Grove. Yeah, the Grove. Yeah, it's just around the corner from it. Local stonecutter Liam Kelly had heard stories of Tom from his own dad. Going here for a minute, please. Your dad, Tom McHugh's. Yes, I am. Great, great, great granddaughter. Yes. Imagine. This picture here, man. This is my dad. Um, this was actually taken in the exact site where we are now, before this uh, showroom was built. And that was taken in 1949. So my dad worked for, for Tom McHugh, your great-grandfather, and he served his time with him from 1937 until 1947. Work was plentiful for stonecutters in Tom's time. Well, there would be stonecutters in every town, maybe two. It wasn't confined, we'll say, to the monumental trade like it is now they would have done a lot of building work. You see, a lot of the old houses, schools, churches would have been all stone. Now, they wouldn't be on a vast scale like now, but, but they would be making, say, for a house, they might do windowsills or, or doorways or, or cornerstones and that type of thing. So they, they always had plenty of work in, in, in the stone business. The trade was very demanding physically and required a lot of skill. It was very hard because the quarrying was, was, was hard work and then to transport it, and then you had a big lump of stone you had to try and put a shape onto that. And no machinery, no saws, no nothing. So it was all handwork that time. This was the work of both an artist and a tradesman. You have to be fairly artistic as well, you see, because um, 
not alone, but just shaping, but the carving, you see, it was so intricate. You had to be able to draw the, the draw the interlacing, the Celtic interlacing, or the Celtic panels, or even if there was uh, panels from from scripture or even uh, religious figures. You had to be fairly artistic to to draw them. To, to draw them first on the stone, and then you had to carve them out. As a craft, it made me sad to see it disappearing, but equally proud that my great grandfather had spent his life in it. Yeah, that's a masterpiece, look. An absolute masterpiece. Liam brought me to the Catholic graveyard in Tume to show me examples of Tom's work. Our first stop was a headstone Tom had made dedicated to the Hessian family. What year was that, actually? 1915 was the first burial there. The cross alone must be about um, nine feet, I'd say, alone, and it's about nine inches thick. It's, every piece of it is carved. You can see there, look, even under the arms. Even the side, even out on the side. It's, every piece of it is carved. That's all one stone. One piece of stone. You see T. McHugh, or sometimes he spoke, T. McHugh actually put it in Irish, he's T. McHugh, sometimes he would do the Irish version because he was a native Irish speaker, so he was proud of his Irish and uh, his Irish roots. They'd always put their trade name on the headstone, you see, their name would be carved in somewhere, like, you know, it's, it's, it's still common today, like, you'd, you'd always put your name on the side of the headstone or on the front, you know, to say who actually made the headstone. Liam had taken me on a very moving journey. I was moved most of all by his respect for my great-grandfather and, of course, these headstones, these beautiful monuments to his skill. It's one of the best known in, in, in Ireland. You won't get anything as good as that anyway. Oh, yeah, it's one of the masterpieces of... of it's one of the finest headstones I've ever seen. Um, there's very few now. The, 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 the only ones now that you could compare them with uh, would be the O'Connors of Banislaw, another great family of stonecutters. They're, they're generations, and they have some wonderful work. So, Tom McEwen and, and the O'Connor and they were master, master craftsmen. From Tom's works of art to Caravaggio's, Ruth and I got together to look through Caravaggio's work to see if we could spot our picture. I mean, at, at least I'm, I'm surprised that he does have some of these kind of, like, non-classical paintings. You know, I thought a lot of his paintings were classical, so I'm kind of heartened to see that they're not all... Classical, kind of religious subjects. Yeah. Yeah. Could any of these paintings be our girl in blue dress with embroidered cloak? Oh, I don't know this one at all, the portrait of a courtesan. What hardens me is the brocades and the detail in the clothing in, in this one and the Madeleine one. Christie's couldn't provide me with any further information on the buyer, A. Martin. But when I met local historian Morris Laheen, he had had a theory. I'm only guessing now from your notes, you said that it was purchased in 1930, which be, would be around the time that Henry Cannon passed away and the auction would have been in 1930. And it was purchased, you said, by an A. Martin. So I'm just guessing that, that if, it was if that was referring to Chum, it most likely was Albert Martin, who was uh, a railway clerk in Chum. Now, the railway station is just a short distance, very short distance, within sight of the stone yard, so it would have been on good terms, I would imagine. I mentioned it to Ruth. It's a very Galway name, is it, Martin? I think it's... Is it one of the tribes? I have no idea. Martin is actually one of the tribes of Galway. Could Morris be onto something? 
I asked Ruth where she imagined the painting to be. I suppose one expects the proper setting would be a big house in England. I suppose I'm kind of expecting brogues and tweeds, maybe. (laughs) And then I received a bit of news from Christie's that took the wind out of my sails. I asked them by email the question that had been niggling at me from the very start. How likely is it that this is a real Caravaggio? When I got their reply, my worst fears were confirmed. It said it was likely that this painting was done by a follower of Caravaggio and not by Caravaggio himself. Christie's preferred not to be interviewed. I was devastated. That painting that Tom McHugh had rolled up under his arm when he brought it to London may not have been a Caravaggio at all. So what was it? A Baravaggio? A Sean McCaravaggio? And was this a stone that was better left unturned? There was nothing to do but laugh or cry. Hi, Philip. Hi. Thanks a million for meeting me. Hi, Nora. I put the same question to art historian Dr. Philip McEvansonia of Trinity College Dublin. How likely was it that our painting was a real Caravaggio? That's the potentially 10 million euro or pound or dollar question, isn't it? Um, How likely is it? Um, uh, If I were to uh, uh, offer an opinion on this, I would say that it's not that likely. And there are a number of reasons for saying that. Um, First and foremost, if that were uh, a genuine, authentic Caravaggio, its whereabouts, its existence would be known now. There would be somebody who would be a very proud and enthusiastic owner of that particular uh, work. And although it might well be held privately, it would certainly be known to the the art trade internationally and it would be known to scholars and historians of art internationally. So it might not be there for the public to see, but it would certainly be known about in public that it existed and maybe its uh, its whereabouts would be uh, would be known. So that's the the first thing to say. Philip added that Caravaggio did not usually paint women unless they were religious figures. He went on to explain that although some paintings in 18th and 19th century Ireland were undoubtedly authentic, many others, due to a lack of knowledge at the time, were misattributed, and some just plain old fakes. Ah, uh, <laughs> some of them were undoubtedly authentic. Some of them were probably not. The majority, though, have disappeared, so it's impossible to be absolutely sure. I think one would be forgiven for suspecting that they were probably not, which maybe explains their disappearance, but it'd be nice to have the the thing itself in order to come up with some kind of uh, proper judgment about them. But there certainly were authentic works of art, not necessarily by the top rank of old master artists, but certainly authentic works by you know, a large number and a wide range of artists that were circulating on the Irish art market. But at the same time, there was a much greater number of works that were optimistically attributed and genuinely believed to be by great old master paintings. I don't think there was any kind of fraud or deception going on. It was simply to do with the state of knowledge at the time and the willingness of people to believe that they had got a Raphael or they had got a a Michelangelo or a Titian because they had no easy way of verifying the authenticity of the work that they had got. Many misattributed paintings, and in certain cases outright forgeries, were happily bought, sold and exhibited in Ireland in the 17 and 1800s. 
But newspapers in the late 1800s began to spoil all the fun. Newspapers, in the sort of roundabout way in which reviews were published in the 19th century, would sometimes raise question marks about the fanciful attributions of works that uh, cropped up, particularly, say, in the exhibitions of the Royal Irish Institution in Dublin, where comments might be made to the effect that no one would ever believe there were so many Raphaels in Ireland. I mean, far more Raphaels in Ireland than might, they might now be accepted as being in the entire world. So where did that leave us? The picture could be a misattributed painting by someone painting in the style of Caravaggio or by one of Caravaggio's followers. Or, let's call a spade a spade, a fake. Our next visit was to the Fine Art Library in the National Gallery of Ireland, where Andrea Leiden, head of Library Archives and Web, was to show us their collection of auction catalogues. We have to roll the shelves, this could take a while because we're there. So you can see we're coming into the auction catalogues now. So that these are these are what we get today, these kind of glossy publications of beautiful illustrations. Very different to what was being published in the 1930s. You can see here our Christie's go back to the 1860s. Bound volumes here. Um, 1900. Here we go. 1930s. Here we go. So, 16th of June, 1930. We have it here. And there it is, yeah. Lot 135. Girl in a blue dress with embroidered cloak, which is an unframed piece, 32 inches by 28 and a half inches. And the way it's listed there, actually, with Caravaggio, you can see the, the artist's name just like that. That indicates, in fact, that they thought it was by a follower of Caravaggio or a school of Caravaggio, rather than it being definitely by the artist. It was the convention in Christie's at the time that if just the artist's surname was printed, it suggested that the painting was thought to be no more than in his general style. If the surname and initials were given, it suggested the possibility that the artist might have executed the painting at least in part. If the artist's full name was given, it meant that, in the opinion of the auctioneer, it was the work of the artist. And you can see it was a fairly common way to list artworks. So you've uh, uh, Ribera here and Poussin. Basically, they're saying we're not 100% sure that it's by this artist, but it's possibly by a follower. Now, we do know... It was actually purchased by Sir Alec Martin. Did you know that? Yeah, we had an A. Martin, yes. had an a. Martin but we didn't think we'd find yeah. about anything else Alec about Martin? the buyer. Yeah, Sir Alec Martin was actually the chief executive of Christie's. Yeah, and um, and he was a big player on the art scene in uh, the UK at that time. Yeah, and he was also on the board here in the National Gallery, and would have been friends with Thomas Bodkin. Dodge, did he? No, he didn't. And I think that's what's quite interesting about this. He, he either purchased it on behalf of a client or for himself. You know, if it was for his own private collection, you, you think, well, he would have had a very good eye. He was a connoisseur and uh, it must be a nice painting. It must be a good quality, high quality painting. So that gives you a lead to follow. <laughs> We had come to the Fine Art Gallery looking for some information on auctions. But never did we imagine that we would find out that the buyer of our painting was none other than the director of Christie's himself, Sir Alec Martin. 
This gave us hope. Although the painting was potentially not a Caravaggio, it could still be a prized painting in its own right. We managed to contact two of Sir Alec Martin's descendants and although very helpful, they had no further information that could help us. I felt the trail may well have run dry. We still didn't know the name of the artist and the buyer's family had no knowledge of it. Your picture might actually be an example of one of these works by a follower rather than by Caravaggio himself, but we don't know, do we? John Gash is a senior lecturer in the history of art at the University of Aberdeen and a specialist in Baroque art and in the followers of Caravaggio, known as the Caravaggisti. He had a big impact through the paintings he did in Roman churches um, and in big Roman aristocratic collections. Lots of artists saw them and were inspired to do similar things, to paint pictures which are for the time, were ultra-realistic. Uh, Caravaggio was said not to have used drawings, to have gone straight to models and painted from them, human models. And many artists, even if some of them did use drawings first of all, followed his criterion after the more decorative and idealised styles of the Renaissance and the late Renaissance, which we call mannerism. So this was a kind of return to nature with a vengeance. I wondered whether any of these Caravaggisti had become noted in their own right. Yes, very much so, although there are other artists who are particularly good, like Orazio Gentileschi, an older artist, Honthorst, another Dutch painter from Utrecht called Hendrik Terbruggen, and, of course, one of the most distinctive artists, who you could say is somewhat Caravaggesque, although the, this term is a bit delimiting, they weren't mere imitators of Caravaggio because they had a great individuality, is the painter from Lorraine, Georges de la Tour. I wouldn't altogether rule out that it is a, a lost Caravaggio that's fallen through the cracks, but um, it's perhaps more likely it's by a follower, either a very good one or perhaps a not-so-good one. But the fact that it was bought by Sir Alec Martin maybe makes me think that it was quite a good one. It looked very much like the fate of our painting was to remain a mystery. Our challenge was to find the right subject, a girl in a blue dress with embroidered cloak, and the same dimensions, 32 inches by 28 and a half, by a possible follower of Caravaggio. But Caravaggio had brought about a revolution. He had hundreds of followers. And Ruth had already searched extensively through their work. Our painting could also very well have ended up in a private collection with no way of tracking it down. It was mid-August, the outlook was bleak, but then Ruth made a discovery. She contacted me from the Fine Art Library where I'd then met her. I had thought I had looked up a lot of Caravaggisti, but I went through your list and when I got to Gentileschi, I did find one piece. And it really excited me because this one is a woman and she's wearing a blue dress and an embroidered cloak. And it's by Orazio Gentileschi. Orazio Gentileschi, a few years Caravaggio's senior, is a renowned Caravaggesque painter. And certainly I see the kind of realism about this painting that I can imagine it being thought to be by Caravaggio. The hand has this 
very real quality and it's very beautifully painted but it's not generic what was fascinating was that it was 32 and 0.13 inches by 28.75 inches so i looked at it and found that it was in the museum of fine arts in houston from the museum's website ruth traced the provenance of the painting back to a sale in christie's in 1951. so i went back to the catalogues and this morning quite serendipitously <laughs> 1951 was out so it was very very quick to find this and I got to June 22nd 1951 Friday uh, a catalogue of pictures by old masters at Christie Manson and Woods London and lot 88 is attributed to Artemisia Gentileschi uh, the daughter of Orezio Gentileschi, but it's described here as portrait of a girl in blue dress and embroidered yellow cloak and white headdress holding a scroll. And the dimensions are exactly the same as described, 32 inches by 28 and a half inches. So the description is extraordinarily close to our original description. More so because I have gone through 10 years of catalogues and I haven't found anything that comes this near. It was hard to believe. The same wording, but with added information and the exact same size. And this, uh, the hammer price was £420. So it was considered a serious sale. In 1951, this painting, currently known as the portrait of a young woman as a Sybil, was attributed to Artemisia Dentaleschi, a female Baroque artist who has been increasingly recognised in recent years. Her paintings are now selling for millions. Um, Artemisia Gentileschi is, you know, this fabulous woman artist. I find it really exciting that it is um, attributed to her because when I saw the genius of Rome, her, her work stood up very strongly beside Caravaggio. You know, she was really an extraordinary painter. The painting has since been reattributed to her father, Orazio Gentileschi, but it is said that Artemisia may have modelled for it. I read in the Houston catalogue that this is attributed to Orazio and thought to be a portrait of Artemisia Gentileschi. So um, personally, the idea that it's um, a portrait by an artist of his daughter, who was a great artist, is would be absolutely lovely end of this story for me. I checked the opinions of Caravaggio experts. I received four replies, all very positive, ranging from an enticing idea to a perfect match. I, I think it's a perfect match. I spoke again to Caravaggio expert John Gash. There are lots of elements of continuity between your sale where your great-grandfather sold the picture in 1930 and the time that the picture of the young woman as a Sybil, as, as they now call it, in the Houston Museum of Fine Arts was sold again, I think, at Christie's in 1951. Um, size is identical, but also the, the catalogue descriptions are very similar, which makes one feel that they've gone back to their previous sale. Um, portrait of a girl in a blue dress. So that's another element of continuity between the two sale descriptions. 
uh, and the embroidered cloak, which they add yellow to it in the uh, 1951 sale, but um, so the description stands, and it must be the same picture in, in my view. Um, John, do you think this is a valuable painting in stone right now? Yeah, I should think it is, absolutely. I mean, this is now in a museum in America, so they're unlikely to sell it, but you meant if they did sell it? Yeah. Right. Hmm. I would think we're talking about several million. <laughs> are you s- <laughs> several million, are you serious? Yes, I-, I am, because Gentileschi is quite a major figure. This is relatively small, so we might be talking about nearer the in the single-figure millions rather than any double figures. But it would depend who was after it, really. I think you certainly could be talking about uh, over a million and maybe uh, maybe three, up to three, four or five. Hi, there. Hi. good, thanks. Um, I believe you have something that we have been trying to track down. We contacted the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston. Helga Irish is their curator of European art. It is the painting of a single figure. It is a young woman. She is dressed in a sort of a greyish blue dress with a, a large scarf draped over her shoulders and with a white turban kind of headdress. In her right hand, she's holding a scroll. She's turned to her right, looking at the beholder and in front of a very dark background. And the painting represents a young woman as a sibyl. A sibyl is a legendary prophetess from the ancient world, set to provide insight and predict the future. Sibyls are generally distinguished by, uh, number one, a sort of turban kind of headdress, and very often they have books or scrolls in which their predictions are noted. Born in Tuscany, Gentileschi moved to Rome, where he came under the influence of Caravaggio, who was the most dominant painter in the early 1600s. Well, you know, there are two Gentileschis. There's the father and the daughter. And what we think is what we have here, and we're pretty certain, is that uh, Orazio Gentileschi is painting his uh, daughter uh, as the Sibyl. She was a very renowned painter in her own right. And what makes this painting so intriguing is uh, that her father representing her as a Sibyl may have a very personal story behind it. She was trained by her father, Uh, who had another um, associate. And she claimed that this associate uh, raped her. Her father took this man to court, and in order to establish the veracity of her accusations, Artemisia was tortured. Back in those days, it was the accusers who were tortured um, to make sure that they were telling the truth. And the instrument that she was tortured with was called a sibyl. It was a series of rings that were uh, put around your fingers and they were tightened and tightened until you couldn't stand the pain anymore. And under this kind of torture, you would certainly speak the truth. It was felt in Roman justice in the 1600s. And so uh, depicting his daughter in the guise of a sibyl may be a reference to this horrendous trial they won. As a matter of fact, Artemisia couldn't even accuse this man of rape because women could not, uh, did not have the rights to accuse somebody, but her father did, and they won the case. And the other man was actually exiled from Rome. Ever since I saw the painting for the first time, 
I had been struck by the unflinching gaze of the woman in the painting. Hearing this story from Helga, it all seemed to make sense. Yes, we're ready. And someday, Ruth and I plan to go to Texas to see it with our own eyes. But in the meantime, FaceTime was going to have to do. There she is. Can you go a little closer? Can you see it? Yeah, yeah. can indeed. Yeah, very clearly, actually. Such a beautiful painting. That's brilliant. Would you be able to zoom out a little just to show us maybe what's around it and where it is? Bought in 1951 by the English J. Tooth Gallery, the painting then went to the David Kutzer Gallery in Switzerland before being bought by the Samuel H. Kress Foundation in America in 1953. The foundation donated it to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston in 1961. And can you give us some idea of who the other artists there, the painting is beside are? Or? Sure. Um, so to the left is I marvelled at the journey of the painting, from Tume to Texas, and many more places before and in between, and the lives it had connected along the way. Among whom were Henry Concanon of Tume, who left a large part of his will to his staff and to the poor of the locality. Sir Alec Martin, who rose through the ranks of Christie's from office boy to managing director. And of course, my great-grandfather. Thanks so much for everything. Brilliant. And thanks to, thanks to the museum as well. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And what would Tom McHugh have made of all of this? Poignantly, in 1951, the year that this painting was sold for the second time in Christie's, Tom had to auction the Central Hotel along with many of his belongings, including his prized paintings. In the end, I mean, my aunt describes my grandfather as having cried only twice in his life. Once um, when his daughter went into the nuns and the second time when he saw all his beautiful paintings spread out on the ground in front of the hotel for auction. As you know, at 56, he retired, and he died in 1957, and he was 80 at that stage. So he'd worked really into his late 70s. The end must have been tough for Tom, but what a legacy he left behind. Magnificent Celtic crosses dotted around the countryside of County Galway. And now, this story. Geraldine said that her grandfather loved stories, but perhaps the best story of all was his own. So it's Pray for the Soul of Mary McHugh, née Fallon, who died August the 2nd, 1950, aged 66 years, and for her husband, Thomas McHugh, who died 9th of May, 1957, aged 80 years. R.I.P. McHugh. It's a much, much simpler cross than he's done for other people. <laughs> 